Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Kids Media Club podcast. In each episode, we take a look at what's happening in kids media, talking to producers, creators, journalists and analysts working in and around the industry. I'm Andy Williams. Hello, and I'm Joe Redfern. And uh, once again, we have our friend of the show. In, in fact, we've almost adopted her, Emily Horgan, who is our uh, resident kind of analyst and uh, talks about all things data and context. So welcome again, Emily. Thank you for joining us. And Hello. we have Helen Dogdale with us uh, today, who is a journalist and uh, with whom we wanted to speak today about YouTube after she penned a very interesting article in TBI Vision uh, lately about YouTube. Now, did you know that next year YouTube turns 18? Oh, don't, don't they grow up quickly? Uh, so we thought we would have a big um, old discussion about YouTube. What's changed over the years? Where are we at now with YouTube? How, in terms of public perception, its usage, its perception by broadcasters, how has it changed over those 18 years? So welcome, Helen. I'll let you say hello in a moment. But yes, um, why don't you just kind of kick off and giving us your upsum of how far YouTube has come in that 18 years? Yeah, so uh, thanks for having me on the show. Well, when I started writing the article, I actually thought YouTube was about 13 years old. So when I realised it was 18 years old, I was quite shocked and felt I'd aged myself for several years. Um, it's, it's just come along so much, hasn't it? It's no longer the younger little sibling that's annoying the traditional broadcasters. It's kind of like, it's got its heritage, it's got roots, it's earned to respect. It's kind of up there as one of the big plays, isn't it? And it's not going anywhere. It's only just going to get bigger and stronger. Yeah, I kind of like the way that YouTube is turning 18 and yet the BBC and Disney are both turning 100. Like, I, I feel like that sums up media landscape right now. Like, YouTube is grown up, getting a job, like, you know, maybe starting to drive, starting to drink. I'm not sure that's going to bode out well for the future. Well, the other two, yeah, respectively, say dinosaurs, are, are, have been have been in the in the game for, for, for a century. <laughs> It's, you know, wouldn't it be great? Just in my mind then I had a flash of some artist needs to do some kind of family picture, some representation of all of these media companies as a family. Wouldn't that be brilliant? There you go. Commission it. Yeah, there, there's something for you to draw, Andy. That's a yes. for you. <laughs> um, Helen, you used the word um, kind of it's as it's grown up, it's earned respect. Well, isn't that interesting given that, you know, within our very recent memory, there wasn't much respect for YouTube. How do you think it's gone about earning it? I think because brands are launching on there, aren't they? Instead of, you know, in the early days, brands and content creators put their content on YouTube, hoping to be found by one of the broadcasting, big broadcasters or um, one of the big streamers. But now they're just content creators like, you know, um, Snoop Dogg and, and uh, um, sorry, Claude Brook, who, who's brought out Doggyland, um, I show they they brought that straight to YouTube early September, and when I spoke to him for the article, he just said he, they they didn't need to go to a streamer, they didn't need to go to a big broadcaster, they were happy with the access that um, YouTube would bring to to their show, and and how all kids of all ages and of all from all, across the whole of the world would be able to have access to it, and they're not looking to take Doggyland anywhere else. They were obviously up for a you know for conversations with broadcasters along the way, but they're confident. That they just want to use YouTube to, uh, to, to just to have the show sitting on there. That's the key thing I think we're seeing. Like, is you know, it is being seen as an avenue to launch shows, and also I don't think you can launch a show on any platform, a show for kids on any platform, and not have a YouTube pre have a YouTube presence. I mean, 
the one that I always think of that like is calling out for a strong YouTube presence is Hilda. Hilda is an awesome Emmy mm-hmm. award-winning show on Netflix that lots of people haven't heard of. Yeah. Um, it's based on graphic novels. I think, you know, it, it feels like it's the, the volume of its fandom could be blown out by it being a bit more accessible. Um, you know, but but the thing is that shows are shows are shows are launching there and, and the 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 democra- the democracy the democratization of the platform and its accessibility to anybody to just upload anything, which obviously has its drawbacks, um, also has that potential that you don't have to have the big deal with the streamers. You don't have to be like the biggest, you know, show in the world. I think of shows like Masha and the Bear, um, which is huge globally now, I think, because of its YouTube presence. That's what's that's what what's helped that show build, not necessarily, you know, uh, any of the background that it came from. So I think YouTube is just such an opportunity. And although it's a uh, record with kids and taking care and caretaking that audience isn't stellar, far from stellar, honestly, but, you know, we all have to admit it's the biggest VOD platform in the world for children. It just is. Yeah, and there's a whole generation that's just grown up with it. They don't remember the world before YouTube, do they? And they just expect to what they, you know, to, to expect to, to find content on there. And if it's not, they're kind of like, well, maybe, you know, not dig any further because it's not on the, the, you know, the platform that they head to straight away. Mm. I mean, one of the things I find really interesting with YouTube is the relationship with the creators on that platform and how your mindset has to kind of change in a way that's quite different from traditional TV. I mean, even for something like, I'm interested to see how Doggyland performs because I think sometimes what people underestimate is just just how much content you've got to feed um, YouTube to actually to actually get momentum and traction. So you've got to have a very different mindset from the traditional TV mindset of you know finessing and perfecting each episode because it's a it's a machine that just needs you to be feeding content and it's and it needs you to be communicating with that audience kind of you know as much as possible because it's that it's that relationship between the creator and the audience on youtube which is a very different relationship to any of the traditional platforms and uh, do do you think the creators are starting to adjust to that i think that that yeah i think they launch with that in mind that they know that the audience want to get up close and personal with them and also the creators want that you know synergy with the audience and Claude and Snoop Dogg launched Doggyland with 30 episodes already in the bank to go live because they knew that as soon as the hit, you know, as soon as it hit, there'd be the de- demand for it. So since then, they've been launching every new episode every Tuesday. And if you look yep, at their Instagram right. as well, that that pushes people to YouTube. And the in- the interaction on Instagram with young kids wanting to dress up as one of the characters is just phenomenal. And it was it was like that within two weeks of launch. So and you know you wouldn't get that on. Uh, a traditional platform, a traditional mm. broadcaster, would you? And it's no. it, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we um, we've we've discussed Bow Whistle before, which is um, yeah, a rabbit hole I fell down and, and became a slight obsession for a while. Um, <laughs> but, but again, interesting in your article when you were speaking to Claude Brooks, was you know they they made a conscious decision to go straight to YouTube. They didn't want a broadcaster, and that is fascinating for me because that's a tipping point we've reached isn't it you know we've all come from a background where 
you were chasing broadcasters. You were scraping together money to try and get to markets, to get FaceTime with broadcasters. In this seemingly impenetrable world of trying to get your idea to them. And then YouTube quietly comes along and removes or at least lowers a lot of those barriers to entry, but has the potential to bring you a far greater audience. And one of the key things that I think, and certainly that I'm using in, in my job now, is feedback. You know, broadcasters have always been terrible at feeding back to their suppliers, viewing figures, data. And actually, there it is on YouTube. Of course, we know you, Moonbug have mastered that art. You know, you get real-time feedback on what kind of episodic content is working, what characters are tracking. You can then use that in subsequent episodes. So it's interesting to hear increasingly creators saying, no, we're not going to broadcasters first. They might be part of the mix, but they come much later now because we're going on YouTube first. So now is I would first question to Claude because of obviously you know the the audience that Snoop brings. I just thought it'd be they'd be rocking up to to a channel in America and going, "We've got this." He's you know, or getting some kind of rights going on a big big argument about who wants it, and they just weren't interested. Maybe further down the line, they're saying that you know they're not saying that they wouldn't want to do something, but um, they're just really happy with YouTube. Obviously, bringing Snoop Dogg to the conversation from the get-go has turbocharged their YouTube presence, and that wouldn't necessarily be typical for a kids' brand launching on there without that. You know, um, obviously, I think what you what you've said there, Helen, about the commitment and and being like you need to be all in. It's not just the, the days of we'll just put it on YouTube. That's not that's not how it works. There needs to be a content plan. It doesn't necessarily all need to be high-end content. Andy, like you said, there's ways of repackaging and reserving that is completely acceptable to the algorithm, but you do need to commit up front. And the other thing I think you need, like it is a different way of producing. And I think a lot of, a lot, a lot of kids producers that I speak to don't get that. They assume that because they can make television, they can make YouTube videos. And I don't think it's the same thing. You need to appreciate it as the platform that it is. And if you're launching a new show there, you need to play to it. Mm. Um, you know, the, 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 the things that people go to YouTube for the search, you know, you might want to make, a great preschool series that hits really deeply home about, you know, particular, you know, emotional learning, etc. But if you want to launch it on YouTube, you should launch it with nursery rhymes because that's what people are looking for. And that's how you'll start surfacing and then bring in the different content. And um, that's something that I see a lot. People think that if they make TV, they can make YouTube videos and it's not the same thing. Yeah. And I think that's absolutely right on the, the intention led search aspect of YouTube. I think that really does change the kind of content that you're producing if you understand that that's how people are getting to it. Mm, I think you I think you're right Helen I'm, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that but you know from 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 their point of view from from if you know we're still talking about Snoop and, and Claude but but you know again back to what Emily said it's that intention you're looking for something but on YouTube you need to deliver it pretty quickly don't you because otherwise there's a million other things they can navigate away to uh, and a lot of producers for TV have the luxury of much longer setup for storylines you know you you've got time that's one thing you don't necessarily have on YouTube is time because if someone is looking particularly for something you've got to surface it probably within what first 10 seconds or so or, or else there's this whole smorgasbord of content that's that yeah. they're trying to lure them away. That's it. And what you know, touching on what Claude said again, he knew that when he came to YouTube with with Doggyland, that that they were bringing Snoop. So obviously he was going to bring an audience, but also they were kind of 
remixing and hip hop fying, if that's a word. So they yeah. so they so bring in new life to nursery rhymes. So then all of a sudden you're talking to a cross generation of audiences, aren't you? You've got granddads and, and aunties and uncles who all know these songs, but then they come running in when they're hearing Bow Whistle and the dog crew kind of rapping them. So that obviously they're going to want to watch them with the younger generation. So. I know the thing, the funny thing about Snoop Dogg is as well, though, obviously he's got an, like a, a super high profile, but he probably would have found a lot of kids broadcasters who didn't want to go near him because, mm-hmm. you know, his reputation in terms of his respect to women and, you know, and, and, yeah. and, he, and he holds to that, like that's part of his shtick, like, you know, um, maybe would have been a bit, uh, a bit of a turnoff. And yet he's proven that it, it, it's not a turnoff to audiences. And we kind of, you know, maybe we talk to ourselves a little bit too much in, in kids' media and kind of self-flagellate, go, no, it couldn't possibly because, you know, this happened then. But actually the audience are prepared to accept it because he's got that playfulness. I think if we go extend that kind of creator question a little bit further, you know, we talk about Mr. Beast as well. You know, Snoop already has a following. And I think Emily's point is really um, pertinent in that actually it does help on YouTube if you already have a following and a community that you can direct there. Um, But, you know, aside from the fact that actually broadcasters might not be the the primary choice for your content anymore, YouTube has also become a launchpad for businesses and for brands. I mean, Mr. Beast is exemplifies that in the sense that you know one of the biggest creators on youtube but has been able to launch a business off the back of it is launched feastables chocolate bars you've got the sidemen who you know play a charity football match and get two and a half million concurrent streams on YouTube. You know, that's viewing figures some broadcasters would give their eye teeth for. And the sidemen beginning to launch their own products. You know, so how 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 have you seen YouTube change in terms of its launch pad for not just for kids content, but actually it's a business platform as well now. Yeah, definitely, you know, and going back to the sidemen, the whole prime drinks, the, you know, Logan Paul and KSI's Prime Drink. I've got a fourteen-year-old who spent eight pound on one bottle because he didn't want. He wouldn't wait until so we could take him to Asda that night. It's just it's phenomenal, isn't it? The reach and, and it all starts from from one platform. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's the biggest marketing platform on the planet. And one of the things I think is kind of inspiring about Sidemen and Mr. Beast is that you can have people that what well, you can have very rich companies that that can't dedicate the time to really make the same impact. But you can have young producers that might not be rich, but they're, they're rich in time that they can dedicate to that. And that makes all the difference. You can really, I mean, careers can explode on that uh, and brands as well. It's amazing. Yeah. I think we, we've seen, I, 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 I've definitely said this before, I, probably to you guys, but it was, you know, that, that iteration of creator 2.0, 3.0. And, you know, you're seeing that, you know, where there was like the whole Brick Crew YouTube um, kind of uh, group before with the Zoella and Zoe Sog, and, uh, sorry, Zoella and her brother, uh, Joe jo Sog and, um, and that crew. And, and, and that they, they were there, they learned the lessons, but now the sidemen and stuff are coming up, having seen that narrative and that journey play out and they're not making the same mistakes. I would argue you can still see that as well on preschool where you've got, you know, little baby bum that started as a bit of a, a bit of a, a a fluke or they just made it for themselves and then Coco Melons come on and, and kind of reiterated that and arguably Little Angel, which is the new one acquired by Moonbug, um, 
is kind of a, the next generation of that again it's being it's becoming a lot more intentional because people have seen how it's worked before it's kind of gone past just the test phase it's the apply learnings phase if you know what I mean mm-hmm. in terms of <clears throat> I'm quite interested in this um you know I'm reading a lot at the moment about niching you know finding a niche um, versus mass and I think that's something that I can certainly see coming out on YouTube. You've said, Helen, you can almost find anything you want there. And we know that uh, that YouTube, um, YouTube has become a kid's default search engine. We, we Google stuff, kids YouTube it. You know, my youngest learned how to tie his school tie from a YouTube video. It's anything that they want to know is there. Um, that does create a lot of opportunity for this kind of niche so what what are your views on this kind of okay we've established that youtube now is, is is garnered respect as a platform that can really create reach but actually it can also create some quite powerful niche fandoms that's it and in the article i explored how um content creators are thinking that because there's a lot more freedom around the, co- the content they can put on there you know there's less people there's less restrictions to entry there's less people that they've got to answer to so there, there's more space to explore um, stories that kind of look at fluid gender and diversity as well, whereas the broadcasters are still a bit kind of standoffish around that, aren't they? Or, you know, the barriers are breaking down, but they're still a little bit more scared. So YouTube, it's almost like free reign. And the audience that they're talking to, they just expect stories to, you know, to feature stories that aren't necessarily dominated by male or female gender there's a lot more um, freedom around them. Yeah, and I think you see that, like, even across the geolocations and stuff like that, you know, it's not just about US content. It, it can mm-hmm. be about, it can be content from anywhere. I mean, the one thing we're not talking about on YouTube is T-Series, which is the the biggest presence on YouTube by, by a country man, but, you know, derived from India. I mean, you know, you're seeing, you're seeing that kind of, that ability to kind of serve, local audiences or even if they're at scale like somewhere like India obviously it's, it's local is, 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 is a big place um, and that that can push through and it does, you know matching the bears another example it doesn't just have to be you know what we kind of all hold in our head as a kind of the Mickey Mouse American content. Mm. I think that that's that's the nice thing is that it, it opens the avenues to to more content coming coming through we we spoke on a podcast uh, one of the previous podcasts about anime and how kids are looking towards lots more anime uh, content. Korean content is really beginning to track. You know, there's, um, you know, stuff coming out of India. There's an animation that I think ended up on Netflix called The Fukre Boys, which I first found on YouTube, which is brilliant. Um, so again, it kind of, it, 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 it reduces a lot of those geo barriers, doesn't it, Emily, in terms yeah. of kids and it validates it validates it right like it validates that it doesn't have to be that a kid that looks like this or a kid that looks like that or a person like it validates that and you know you see that with streamers now it's like oh squid game is a big thing yeah who yeah yeah korean people are great at telling stories like we all that was why was that why is that such a surprise right Mm. yeah and it's so fast to get stuff there um i mean you think about the development process for a traditional broadcaster and, uh, and even if they had all of the enthusiasm to, to do something with it, it's still going to take them a year or two before it actually lands, uh, lands on a screen. Whereas with YouTube, it can be, it's just kind of almost instantaneous that, 
uh, if you can record it or if you can animate it and the animation's getting a lot quicker now than it used to be and upload it, then somebody can find it. And it's that speed of creation, which I think has kind of totally revolutionized the way people consume content. Uh, yeah. It's amazing. I have a question for you, Andy, because you're, yeah. you're the creative here. I mean, I, I know in theory that's lovely, but how would you feel about that lens on your own? Like, you know, publishing stuff on YouTube, having to work, you know, 10 week turnaround, the pressure of the audience feedback. Like, is that is that something you'd welcome or like how, how would it make you feel? Would it make you sweat? Yeah, I mean, it depends how much. Um, I guess it depends how much you're, you're kind of dictated by the algorithms to kind of run run that hamster wheel um uh yeah i'm not sure really there is a there is it is nice sometimes having that barrier and having that space to refine something and you know you uh it doesn't really allow itself to have that if you've got to get something up there immediately that's why people like mr beast or sidemen kind of that stuff really works is that stuff can be put out there quite rapidly uh if you've got to sit in a writer's room and um, and work through a couple of drafts of a script. You're just not going to be able to get it uploaded at the same speed. Um, I I want to pick up a little bit on uh, something you said there, um, Andy. But then I'm going to throw it back to both Emily and Helen because I think you'll both have a viewpoint on it. And it's about that kind of relationship with the audience. And what's come through here is that you know we've got creators like Mr. Beast, like the Sidemen. What they do much better than broadcasters is they get to know their audience. They have a really intimate relationship with the audience. And as you said just momentarily, uh, a moment ago, Andy, the, they give them time. Now that's very often not something broadcasters can do. They can't get to know their audience intimately because of the timeframes and how TV, traditional TV is made. And similarly, they don't very often give them time. So to both of you, I'll come to you, Emily, first, and then to Helen. So what can traditional broadcasters learn from YouTube and by extension from creators like Mr. Beast and, and the Sidemen? How can they, what can they learn? Yeah, well, I mean, you've kind of hit the nail on the head there, Joe. And it is hard with kids because you're not supposed to be talking to them without their parents yeah. there. And, and when you're in a big grown-up broadcaster that's full of uh, paperwork, etc., like that's, that's, that's a key barrier but like I think creators like Mr Beast coming up you know they they represent such an opportunity and it doesn't even necessarily need to, need to, need to be uh you know creative folks at that at that level obviously he's super successful it's people who have grown up with social and YouTube as front and center in their lives I think have you know I think that's where the opportunity to listen can be you know to understand what their views are on how content should be made, how it should be structured, you know, and not to kind of stay in the the dark ages of like, you know, we do linear broadcasting, therefore we do this. You know, I think that would be a risk factor, honestly, in terms of evol evolving, you know, what we're doing with content and how, and how we're speaking to the audience. I think that's the real opportunity that creators like Mr. Beast and young people, young people coming up through, um, through media really represent because we don't get it like we we just don't like and i would you know i love jumping into new to new to new social platforms like you know i'm on tiktok but like i'm still on mom talk right like it's not the, i'm not at the cutting edge of tiktok much and all as i you know would love to be i just am it that cool you know so um it's trying to kind of tap into that 
that sensibility. Um, and again, back to that point of just, be, you know, just because you, you can make TV and maybe you've made award-winning TV that's been very successful, doesn't, you know, you need to still have that humility to understand that you can learn, you know? And mm-hmm. I think that's something that maybe is, you know, needed in a little bit higher quantities at times. Mm. It was interesting from my point of view when I was writing the article, I actually reached out to Mr. Beast and um, the Sidemen to try and get them involved, but didn't get any... Well, the Sidemen actually said they'd come back and looked at the questions, but then they didn't want to be involved. So, And also speaking to the other people that I spoke who were involved in the the interview, um, they didn't directly want to give feedback on exactly what traditional broadcasters should be doing, which was, I thought they would be, you know, happy to have the floor open to them and they'd have loads of content and and loads of feedback. Um, But they kind of danced around the answers. They kind of said that they need to relax the grip on rules and regulations to make it easier for people to work with them. And also to um, trial more shorter episodes and shorter versions of the content because obviously that works really well on YouTube, doesn't it? But they obviously... There's a lot of respect still there from, you know, YouTube content creators. And I think they they see that traditional TV is um, relevant, still relevant, still well respected. It creates, an ex, you know, a great experience and they provide quality content. But, um, yeah, I think they just think that they can both kind of last. And there's enough space for both of them to, to you know, to be around for a long time. Creators like Mr Beast and the Sidemen and, and others are mindful that actually there might still be a place for broadcasters in their brand plans. <laughs> you know, it's still an important platform. So, you know, much as, as YouTube, I've no doubt, could sustain them if they chose only to stay on that platform, they are beginning to look at other platforms, Mr. Beast gone on TikTok. So, you know, so broadcasters still do have their place. I think the key thing, well, I think the key thing I'll be watching for, and I'll be waiting a while for it, but I'm, I'm good for it, um, with this new, this kind of 3.0 generation of creators is how they evolve it as they get older, right? Because this is a feed, this is the thing I've heard about, you know, those the, those you know 2.0 or 1.0 um, creators on YouTube is that, you know, once once you're 25 or 30, like the people that you're the audience who you're speaking to are then 25 or 30, you know, like they're around your age or they, and they've grown up and they've probably grown out of YouTube and they've grown out of I don't think grow out of social media, but their use of it changes. Mm. And it, and then you have, kind of have to make the decision. Are you going to continue to try to talk to the people who are really hot on there in terms of, you know, maybe 13 or, you know, you know, old kids, old kids are there. But, you know, when you're talking about these creators, you're kind of like teenagers to early 20s. Are you going to continue to talk, talking to them? Are you relevant to still continue talking to them? Because, you know, if you're 30, like, you know, is your view, your view, you know, probably isn't the same doesn't have the same authenticity or, or relevance as, as as it would have when when you were younger so it's trying to you know I think there does come a natural point where so far anyway where creators have to evolve away from YouTube because the audience that's there isn't the isn't the audience that you, used to be for them yeah it's yeah, a good point I think that's true yeah I think it's a good point you know maybe they're hedging their bets for their future Future yeah, it's like career, you know, you, the five or ten year plan, you know. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, as you were saying that, I was thinking about Adele with her albums. You know, she's she's grown up making music. She had nineteen. She had twenty one. You know, you see the Sidemen. Um, you know, one of the Sidemen left literally left the charity football match 
and went to see his newborn. You know, so it's very likely that they will become parents themselves. I imagine that will influence the kind of content that they make. Who knows? Let's, you know, maybe they're going to be making nursery, Sidemen nursery rhymes in the next few years. Um, But it will be interesting to see as a, and it's a nice nice point at which to kind of wrap up the conversation. You know, as YouTube grows up and turns 18 next year, we're talking about creators and brands on the platform also growing up and actually potentially they might grow through their whole life cycle on YouTube and we'll be able to track that and follow that. Let's give the final word to you, Helen. So what in writing that article, clearly you, you did a lot of thinking and speaking to people around it. What was what was the takeout for you? What did you do you get? You know, what's if you had a crystal ball, what would you say is next for YouTube in its next 18 years? I think a lot more of the same, just a lot more freedom in content and niche market. But also um, working with brands and, and, and broadcasters away from YouTube as well, you know, like a gateway to work with more traditional broadcasters. I think there's a lot of respect for people on YouTube for other brands and, and um, media media companies and, and they, they want to kind of coexist together. Brilliant. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Fantastic. That's awesome. awesome. Thank you, Helen. Thank you to Emily and thank you to Helen. Lovely to see you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode of Kids Media Club Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please like and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for listening and we hope we'll be back for the next one.